Welcome to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast, presented by the Hampton Inn, Waco North. This episode, part two of In the Locker Room with Jerry Levias. We'll take a look at the life and career of Texas Sports Hall of Famer Jerry Levias. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast presented by the Hampton Inn Waco North. Come visit the Texas Sports Hall of Fame in Waco and be sure to book your stay at the Hampton Inn Waco North. You never know who you might run into. My name is Jackson Michael, author of The Game Before the Money and writer-director of We Were the Oilers, The Love You Blue Era. This episode, part two of In the Locker Room with Jerry Levias. In part one, we talked about Jerry's early life being diagnosed with polio, needing braces to walk as a child, and then his outstanding high school football career. We also heard the story of how SMU head football coach Hayden Fry convinced Jerry to play for the Mustangs, even though Jerry had never heard of SMU before, had very little knowledge of the Southwest Conference, and initially strongly considered following his cousin Mel Farr to UCLA. When Jerry buckled his chin strap and stepped on the field for the Mustangs, he became the first black scholarship athlete in Southwest Conference football history. In accepting that scholarship to SMU, Jerry blazed a trail along a path no one had traveled before. With Hayden Fry as a guide and the Bible given to him by freshman coach Sleepy Morgan as his chart and compass, a young Jerry Levias, barely out of high school, forged his way into history through a terrain of segregation and hatred. Bob West, former sports editor of the Port Arthur News, stresses the importance of recognizing how deeply racism and segregation infested the culture. I think when you start talking about these kind of things, people who really don't have a framework, don't have a context for that, you know, just don't realize, like, I went to work for, there was an afternoon paper in Beaumont, the Beaumont Journal, and there were limitations on the pictures of black athletes and black brides, whatever, obits. I mean, things really were different then than they are now. So to discuss all this, people just have to realize how much different it was. Newspaper restrictions on sports coverage, wedding announcements, and obituaries barely scratches the surface in describing race relations of the time. In Texas, and many places throughout the South, racial tension and hatred carved a gash into society. Segregation reached its fingers into virtually every aspect of life. There were segregated restaurants, hotels, restrooms, water fountains, laundromats, movie theaters, pretty much anything you could think of. Many people from the general population and even in the government fought integration tooth and nail. Sometimes that resistance turned violent. Other times it took the form of legislation, as in laws aimed at suppressing African-American voting rights. Jerry chose 23 as his jersey number. His grandmother suggested it as a symbol of Psalm 23 in the Bible. Psalm 23, verse 1 through 3, states, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. 
He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. As Jerry did his best to walk the path of righteousness, others followed society's lead. Jerry tells us that even included members of the freshman football team. They beat me up in practice, spit on me the whole nine yards. Even the, the trainers didn't want to tape me. You know, you had freshman trainers and all that kind of stuff. And the varsity trainer, Eddie Lane, he would tape me. Nobody wanted to touch me. Jerry says he was also ostracized in the classroom. Leaving kids in some of the classrooms that didn't want to sit by, you know. Jerry told us that one student even came up to him and asked if it was true that he had a smaller brain because he was black. Despite all this, like any college student, Jerry still wanted to fit in. He believed he found that opportunity when some of his teammates asked him to go out to dinner. See, let's, let's take him out to eat. They took me out to eat. So then all of a sudden, there was four of us. Then all of a sudden, one guy gets up and says, listen, I got to go to the restroom. The next guy says, I got to go make a phone call. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting there by myself. <laughs> they all left. I had to walk back to school and pay the check. He also had some teammates invite him to play poker. Then, you know, as I'm over there rooming by myself, they're over there playing cards or doing something. So somebody said, yes, invite Jerry over to play cards. I'm going, okay, you know, I want a company. I got beat with four aces, and the guy told me, ah, that's no good, throw your hand in. Then after a while, one of the little guys told me, you know, they suck at you, man. <laughs> Jerry wasn't going to fall for that twice. Remember, he did finish third academically in his high school class. He knew just the right place to go to help him get even. First time I went to the library, I went to the library checked out some books on playing poker. Jerry got a little too good at playing poker and a little too laxed in his conventional studies for Hayden Fry's approval. Coach Fry threatened Jerry with some disciplinary action that had nothing to do with football. So then after a while, about a couple of months, Coach Fry called me in and my grades were bad. So he called me in and he says, I understand that uh, you're a good poker player. I'm going, I do all right, coach. I'm winning me a couple hundred bucks a week, you know, by that time. Not studying, playing poker all night. And I'm from a religious family. We didn't even play old maids in our house. He said, if your grades don't improve and you don't stop playing poker, he said, number one, I'm going to call you, and he didn't say mother. He said, I'm going to call you mama. Oh, no. And then he said, and then you're going to meet me at the stadium at 5.30 every morning. And I said, it's 5.15, okay, coach. (laughs) (laughs) Don't call mama. I'll meet you at 5.15. Jerry's grades improved after that conversation. Not all attitudes towards Jerry improved, however. In those days, NCAA rules prohibited freshmen from playing varsity football. So Jerry played on the freshman team. He scored a game-winning touchdown against Arkansas's freshman team but his play would be limited that year due to an injury. During a freshman scrimmage game, Jerry scored several touchdowns. Although his performance impressed the varsity players who were watching, one of his freshman teammates took exception. He blindsided Jerry on a play and broke three of Jerry's ribs. The injury limited Jerry's playing on the freshman team. The weight on Jerry was immense. He decided he had had enough and was ready to head west to California. I was ready to go. My sister, she lived in California then, and, you know, Mel was at UCLA. 
and you know Hayden Fry. You know he had somebody. He, he's smart man. He had somebody watching me because I I was getting ready to go to California. You know, just that night I was getting ready to leave. Had my cab ready because one of the janitors at the school drove a cab. He was going to take me to the airport. But just so happens, Coach Fry called me that night and we just wanted to talk and find out how everything was going and everything. And then I called my sister and I told her, I said, I'm going to quit. I'm, I'm leaving. I'll be out there tomorrow, next day. And she said, you know what your daddy said? And I'm going, what? You make your bed, you sleep in it. That means you gave him your word, you keep your word. Your word is your bond. Jerry followed his father's guidance. Coach Fry, who had grown up in Odessa, Texas, pitched in some West Texas wisdom. Jerry tells us there were three main sayings that Coach Fry gave him. Hi, I'm from West Texas. You used to tell me, always keep your dauber up. What is a dauber? Jerry deciphered that to mean that he should always keep a positive attitude. And if you don't want him to get your goat, don't tell him where it's hid. And then the other thing he told me, he says, you got to dance with what brung you. And that's faith in God. Another person influenced Jerry his freshman year. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King spoke at SMU, and the school's administration arranged a meeting with Jerry. Willis Tate, president of the university, wanted me to meet him. But they didn't want it to be like I was placed there by Dr. King. They called me into a private room, and I met Dr. King. And we spoke for about five or ten minutes, and he told me one thing that I took and take it, I guess, a little bit too far. He said, I want to tell you something. Always keep your emotions under control, and you never saw me lose my emotions. Entering Jerry's sophomore year of 1966, Hayden Fry had only managed a total of 11 wins in his four years as SMU's head coach. The Ponies opened up the 1966 slate against Illinois, a team that crushed them 42 to nothing the year before. Recruiting Levias raised controversy by itself, but Jerry actually playing added fuel to the ire of those within SMU's fan base who favored all-white Jim Crow Southwest Conference football. The foundation of that brand of football cracked a week earlier as walk-on John Westbrook stepped onto the field for Baylor in the final minutes of a lopsided win over Syracuse, becoming the first African-American to play on a varsity Southwest Conference football team. The spotlight, however, stared in Jerry's face as a recruited scholarship athlete the coaching staff sought out. Jerry made an immediate impact in several ways. He electrified the home crowd with two touchdowns against Illinois and the Mustangs enjoyed a 26-7 win against a team that trounced them the previous season. Richard Pennington, author of Breaking the Ice, The Racial Integration of Southwest Conference Football, says that game already started to change some minds. He was doing great things right off the bat. And if any of his fellow teammates and some of the fans, SMU fans, maybe initially they weren't too happy about it. They saw what he could do, and uh, you know the boos turned to cheers. Very quickly. SMU started out the 1966 season with two wins in three games. All of those games were against non-conference opponents, with the only loss coming against a Purdue squad led by future NFL legend Bob Greasy. The Mustangs opened the Southwest Conference schedule against Rice. Rice jumped ahead 
and held a 24-13 lead in the fourth quarter. Jerry had yet to touch the ball. The Ponies then ran a trick play, Jerry taking an end-around handoff before launching a 47-yard touchdown pass. A two-point conversion narrowed Rice's lead to 24-21. SMU drove their next possession to the Rice 20-yard line and lined up for a game-tying field goal with just seconds remaining. Jerry lined up as the holder, took the snap, and darted for a first down. The successful fake field goal gave SMU the ball on the Rice 10-yard line with 9 seconds left. Jerry raced to the corner of the end zone, leapt high over a defender, and came down with both a touchdown and the win. Magical moments would become Jerry's trademark. Pennington remembers Jerry's game-breaking skills and how his play shook the conference. Gosh, he did so many things. Unbelievable. Punt returns, kick returns, catching passes. He did so many great things, it's just impossible to list. One thing that I would mention, if people haven't seen him, is that Jerry was so fast and so quick. He had the ability to escape a tackle like I've never seen before. He could minimize the contact, and he could also get away from a tackle and gain more yards, or even go down, down the field for a long run. He hit the Southwest Conference like a bolt of lightning. And when he did, this is the bigger issues. Everybody saw it. The coaches, the fans, everybody saw it. And they knew that the days of Jim Crow football were over. Changes indeed were happening in the Southwest Conference. And SMU playing winning football was one of the changes. SMU won their second conference game the next week against Texas Tech, setting up a big game against the Texas Longhorns in Austin. This was rarefied air for the Mustangs, who hadn't won the Southwest Conference since 1948. They now had a chance to leap out to a 3-0 start in conference play. Now remember, Jerry was a man of his word, keeping his promise to stay at SMU. Hayden Fry had also made a promise to Jerry's grandmother, and he would honor that promise before each game, even when that promise would hit a snag like it did before the Texas game. My grandmother asked Coach Fry to make one promise. Call me before every game so I could pray for him. Never missed a game. And then one time we were playing University of Texas, and the line was busy. And I told Coach, he said, you talk to Grandma? I said, no, so the line was busy. The ball game was about to start. Coach Fry and I are under the stadium at a telephone booth getting a prayer from my grandmother. By the time prayers were said, the game had already started, and the Longhorns soon jumped out to a lead in front of their home crowd. Texas broke the game open on the third play like this. Chris Gilbert takes the pitch back. Jim Helms lays the block. Chris heads for the South 40 in high gear. Get him up, get him out. 74 yards to glory. Texas 6, SMU nothing. Jerry would put SMU ahead in the second quarter, however, on a drive using his feet, his arm, and his hands. The all-around play forced announcers to use baseball analogies to describe Jerry's athleticism. Jerry zigs and he zags around for what is really 10 yards to midfield. This time it's Levias, the left-hander, who steps to the pad. And Jerry finally gets off the change of baseball down to Harold Richardson for 11 more to the Texas 15. And this time Jerry puts on his catcher's mask and runs nine yards deep to the end zone. He soaks up Mike Livingston's touchdown pass. This is caught by the CD or pants. It's SMU 7-6. 
The two teams traded scores in the second half, and SMU prevailed 13-12. The Mustangs won five of their first six conference games that year. They went into the last week of the season with a chance to win the Southwest Conference title for the first time since 1948. Jerry made all Southwest Conference. He averaged over 23 yards per catch and scored seven touchdowns. As Jerry kept making plays, his notoriety grew. Of course, not everybody wanted Jerry to succeed. Hate mail began to arrive. Sometimes, rather than being addressed to Jerry by name, envelopes would be addressed with racial slurs written on them. Others started making threatening and obscene phone calls. So SMU had a couple of secretaries start opening Jerry's mail. Jerry wasn't the only one taking the heat. Hayden Fry also took a lot of abuse. A well-known exchange happened between Hayden and one of SMU's wealthiest donors. The alumnus threatened to never donate another dime to SMU if Jerry continued to play. Of course, the threat also contained a racial slur. Bob West tells us what Hayden's response was. And Hayden said, well, I'm sorry you feel that way, but he's going to continue to play because he's one of the best players in college football. And there was a lot of that. All the while this was happening... Jerry followed Dr. King's advice and kept his emotions in check. Doing so came at a cost, however. They say it's lonely at the top. It's also lonely being first. This stuff people don't realize, you know, when, uh, you know, you, you grew up in a point when you say grown men don't cry, remember, you know, and stuff like that. But just the idea, you know, feelings were hurt, lonesome, hurt, you know, the whole nine yards and depression. But emotion-wise, everything's okay. Psalm 23, verse 4 says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The Mustangs prepared for their final regular season game against TCU. On the way to the game, Jerry sat on the bus by himself, like he would his entire SMU career, reading the Bible. Every time I got on the bus to go to a game or whatever, I always had the back seat and I always had the Bible. And I read it, didn't look out the window or anything. I was strictly concentrated on that. This time, things would be a little bit different, though. If SMU won, SMU would win their first Southwest Conference title since 1948. They would also earn a berth in the Cotton Bowl. Hayden Fry walked up to Jerry. And Coach Rice said, Levi, I want you to get off the bus last. I'm going, okay, Coach. I'm thinking, I'm a star. Yeah, I'm a star. I'm getting off the bus last, got police protection, you know, this kind of stuff. So we're getting dressed and everything. Coach come in and said, Levi, I just want to let you know there's been death threats on your life. A guy called in a death threat for Jerry. Playing guy said he would be there with a rifle and he was going to kill him. And, you know, none of the coaches but Hayden would stand next to Jerry on the sidelines that day. The other assistants got away from him. They didn't know some nut wasn't actually going to do it. Law enforcement believed the threat to be credible enough to have campus police, state police, Fort Worth police, and the FBI attend the game. SMU ran quick huddles and kept Jerry in the middle of the huddle in hopes to reduce the chance of an incident. Despite all the fear surrounding the threat and the pressure of winning a big game, both Jerry and the Mustangs responded with a 21-0 victory. Levias provided a 68-yard touchdown. 
SMU had won their first Southwest Conference title since 1948 when Doak Walker stormed the field for the Ponies. They played Georgia in the Cotton Bowl. The game was played on December 31st to accommodate the Dallas Cowboys-Green Bay Packers NFL Championship game. Georgia defeated SMU 24-9 in the Cotton Bowl. The Cotton Bowl loss didn't take away from a magical season for the SMU Mustangs. And Jerry Levias, guided by faith, excelled under the most adverse of conditions. When we come back, we'll take a look at the second half of Jerry's college career and follow him into pro football and beyond. In part two of In the Locker Room with Jerry Levias on the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast, Presented by the Hampton Inn Waco North. This is Cliff Harris, free safety for the Dallas Cowboys. You're listening to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast. Enjoy it. If you've enjoyed listening today, please visit the Texas Sports Hall of Fame in Waco. The museum tells the story of the greatest athletes and coaches in Texas history by using objects from its collection, which numbers over 15,000. And when you come to Waco, be sure and stay at the Hampton Inn Waco North, located just eight minutes from the museum on I-35. The Hampton Inn has recently been renovated and includes free hot breakfast, free Wi-Fi, and an indoor-outdoor pool. And since the Hampton Inn is the official hotel of the Texas Sports Hall of Fame, you never know who you might bump into in the lobby. Hey, is that Earl Campbell? Welcome back to part two of In the Locker Room with Jerry Levias on the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast, presented by the Hampton Inn, Waco North. Although Jerry enrolled a few years after Hayden Fry accepted the head coaching job at SMU, Fry had dreamed of helping to instigate social change for quite a while. Coach Fry also knew that such a stance put his coaching career at risk. Just take a moment, you think about a young guy, 30, 35 years old, get a chance to become a head coach in the Southwest Conference. But his only request in that contract was that they would let him recruit a black athlete. So can you imagine a young guy getting a chance to get a head coaching job at Southern Methodist University, telling him, I'll take your job if you let me recruit a black athlete? He came from the wrong side of the tracks in Odessa. He was a poor kid. He said that if he ever had the chance, he was going to do something for the black people of Texas, and he did have a chance. Hayden Fry just cannot get enough credit for what he did. Of course, he wanted to win football games. That's the point that also has to be made. You know, he was doing a good thing, but he also wanted to win games. He never denied that. And when Hayden Fry's Mustangs did in 1966, finishing with eight victories and a top 10 ranking in the final AP poll. Jerry either scored or set up the winning points in seven of the Mustangs' eight wins. The other side of the story, however, was the physical and emotional violence Jerry endured. Opponents spat in his face 
and took cheap shots after the whistle that referees ignored. Countless racial slurs and hateful insults foamed off the tongues of opposing fans. The Southwest Conference condemned the unsportsmanlike play during their winter meetings. Meanwhile, Coach Fry did his best to help Jerry cope. Coach Fry and I, we used to talk all the time. You know, late at night when everybody else was gone, and I'd go to his office. So he didn't want to let everybody think that I was special. You know what I mean? So I'd, you know, go to his office at 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night, and we'd talk. And, you know, he said, Levi, you know, there's only eight or nine racist people in the world. I'm going to coach smoking something. He said, now they move around a bunch. You're going to get one every once in a while. But people are basically nice. 1967 started off with more Levias magic in the very first game. Jerry's nickname was Levi, and the coaching staff implemented a play called Levi, get open. The play didn't differ from one called in every American backyard. Hey, you get open and I'll throw the ball to you. Turns out that play can work in Division I college football also, at least when you have Jerry Levias on your team. In the waning seconds of the season opener of 1967, SMU trailed Texas A&M, and Coach Fry called a timeout to send in the play call. So we got four seconds left in the game, and then uh, <laughs> Coach Fry sent in the play, and everybody said, what's the play, what's the play? And uh, Coach called play, Levi, get open. I knew what that meant. And out of nowhere, the ball came up, and I go up for it, and we win the game with four seconds. The Ponies won that first game. But injuries hampered their chances in future contests. Uh, everybody started getting hurt. Mike Livingston got hurt. If Livingston would have stayed healthy, we'd have repeated. You know, but Mike Livingston got hurt and went through another quarterback. Inez Perez got hurt, even. And we had to go to Eddie Valdez. We were just depleted that year. Jerry's season also ended early due to injury. Although the conference verbally addressed the violence directed towards Jerry, that didn't stop the hatred. Yeah, we were playing against Baylor. And I was on the bottom of the pile. The guy just raised up my little face mask. You know, we didn't have much of a bar on that. Raised up my helmet and punched me directly in the eye. Pushed my eye back into my socket. Broke what they call zygomatic arts. So I'm seeing double. Jerry continued to play despite the injury. Incredibly, he even made a few receptions while seeing double. He notified the coaching staff after his vision problems extended into the next day. So finally, the trainer, I was telling him the next day, I'm seeing double. Next thing I knew, I was getting ready for operation. They put me in the hospital under an assumed name. Jerry needed to avoid contact for six months after the operation. That meant missing spring practice. Nobody wanted to disclose the seriousness of the injury. Levias enrolled in extra classes to keep things quiet. If I'd have had contact within six months, I'd have lost my sight. So every day they scrimmaged, I had classes. And, and it maybe caused some problems, but people don't know. A lot of people didn't realize that I almost lost my sight. And he didn't want people to know I had weaknesses. Despite a rocky 3-7 and seven record for the Mustangs, Jerry still put up solid numbers and made all-conference for the second straight season. But there was one other important thing that happened for Jerry during his junior year, one that would affect his future. Said I was a junior, and uh, they had this thing up on the billboard about, you know, these recruiters going to be on campus for jobs. I signed up to be interviewed by the college recruiter. They offered me a job. 
And I said, yeah, I'd be happy to take it, but I'll graduate next year. But they gave me a summer job, and it set my career, and I worked for Conoco for some, like, 15 years. Fortunately for SMU fans, Jerry didn't forego his senior season to work at Conoco. Jerry had already provided SMU's Hilltop with plenty of magic during his sophomore year of 1966 and his junior year of 1967. But it would be his senior season of 1968 when his statistics would go through the roof and he would become a consensus All-American. Sophomore year was like, oh, he's for real. Junior year, he was for real. Senior year, he's really real. Redshirt sophomore Chuck Hickson started at quarterback for SMU in 1968. He led the nation in a number of passing categories. Jerry ended up snagging 80 catches for over 1,100 yards, equating to nearly one-third of Hickson's passing total that year. Chuck Hickson recalls for us a few special traits Jerry possessed in receiving. He was fast, but he was probably quicker than he was fast. And he certainly, I guess they call it today, catching radius. He had a he had a very large catching radius, if you will. I mean, all you had to do was kind of get it in the area, and he would catch it. SMU started the 1968 season on the road at Auburn. Jerry said that posted in the locker room was literally a sign of the times. There was a plaque on the wall that no black would ever set foot on that field. Jerry did step on the field, however, and helped lead the Mustangs to a 37-28 victory. Jerry said that after the game, he further mocked the sign by getting on the team plane wearing a George Wallace for governor hat. In week two, the Mustangs traveled to Columbus, Ohio to face eventual national champion Ohio State. Although the Buckeyes earned a lopsided victory, Jerry mocked their defense, so much so that he can still joke about it with Ohio State alumni today. I'm on the board of Texas Bowl, and we got a guy who he was an Ohio State coach and administrator and all that kind of stuff. I said, I called 15 against you, coach. He said, no, you didn't. I said, but really means bad. I said, it was really 18 because three of them was passing interference. I pushed off. <laughs> <laughs> the 15 receptions Jerry was credited with stood as an SMU team record until 2009 when Emmanuel Sanders notched 18 receptions in a game. There would be more Levias fireworks in week three against NC State. Jerry pulled down three touchdowns. Chuck Hickson tells us about one of those touchdowns. He caught about a 70-yarder. We had thrown shorter routes in front of the defense, you know, and kind of baited them a little bit prior to him just double-moving his man and the safety, quite frankly, and, and, and running by them. And I can still almost see it. That was in the Cotton Bowl, and it was a great play. Jerry raked in 213 yards receiving that day, which stood as a single-game SMU record until 2013. Rewriting the record book didn't insulate him from the hate, however. Things came to a breaking point in a game against TCU. The score was tied 14-14 in the fourth quarter. An opposing player knocked Jerry down, spewed out a racist insult, and spat in Jerry's face. Jerry had taken that kind of abuse for four years now. He was pretty much done with it. When the guy did it, I jumped up and I came to the sidelines 
and I told Coach Ryan a few words, I quit. He forgets about coaching, comes sits on the bench with me. Timothy, well, you're not going to let a guy like that destroy you or, or beat you. He said, I tell you what, we're going to hold them, and they're going to punt to us this time, and you just go back in and run this punt back, and that'll be okay, okay? I said, yes, sir. <laughs> I jumped up, ran out on the field, and all of a sudden he's calling me back, and I'm going, what's the matter? <laughs> he threw my helmet out to me and said, you're going to need this. Jerry ran back, got his helmet, and put it on. Teammate Chuck Hickson remembers what happened next. Levias took it in his own hands and did something very, very conclusive on the scoreboard. They punted, and Levias ran one back, a long punt return that basically won the game. Jerry's 89-yard punt return for a touchdown decided the game, and SMU won 21-14. Yet another magical moment in the storied college career of Jerry Levias. And knowing the backstory, perhaps the most triumphant moment. It's an awesome story. Getting up off the ground, overcoming the hatred, scoring the game-winning touchdown. Something you can applaud over and over and over again every time you hear it. And Jerry fully understands that. But for him, it's also a bittersweet memory. I ran probably one of the best touchdowns I think I'd ever run in college pros or whatever but I ran it out of hate you know that you know you look at one hand I would say that's the thing tv movies are made out of and all that kind of stuff and I dared somebody to touch me and you ran and you did all this but for me it's a lesson hate you know because I that's the first time I really hated of all the spitting in the face and people calling me the n-word and the loneliness and everything else it doesn't compare to that one moment, and I've never hated so much. And I've never reached that height of hate in my life since. They taught me a lesson. You think it poison the other person hate, but it poisons you. I mean, it just absolutely is a feeling that I never want to have. The SMU Mustangs won eight games in Jerry's senior season. They beat Oklahoma in the Blue Bonnet Bowl, with Jerry scoring a key touchdown in the fourth quarter. The Mustangs finished the season ranked 14th in the final AP poll. That 1968 Blue Bonnet Bowl would be the last bowl appearance for the SMU Mustangs until the 1980s. Jerry's 80 receptions on the season set an SMU record that wouldn't be broken until the mid-90s. And his 1,131 yards receiving stood as a single-season Mustang record until 2009. As mentioned before, Jerry was a consensus All-American in 1968. He also made his hometown of Beaumont, Texas famous while appearing on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Bob West gives us the details. He also shares with us how Beaumont's civic leaders eagerly embraced the attention. Somehow, I guess the question was asking, Jerry, where is your home? He just popped out with it. He said, I'm from Beaumont, Texas, the pro football capital of the world. As it turns out, there were 16 players from Beaumont in the NFL after the 1971 draft. Now think about that a minute. This is a town of 120,000 people, and they had 16 guys playing in the NFL. The mayor of Beaumont jumped on this thing. He was at a national mayor's conference in Philadelphia. He introduced himself as, I'm Ken Ritter. Mayor of Beaumont, Texas, the pro football capital of the world. That all originated with Jerry. 
Jerry was one of those 16 players from Beaumont in the NFL in 1971. The Houston Oilers drafted him out of SMU in the second round, and Jerry made the American Football League All-Star game in his rookie season of 1969. You find out that, you know, the NFL is like, say, not for long. Make sure that you graduate, get grades, learn social issues, learn about life. Don't let life live you. You live life. A drastic knee injury interrupted Jerry's pro career. Uh, I had what they call a patella tendon rupture. And they didn't have the modern stuff like they do today. You know, I was in the cast for like six months. And then they wrote me off. And that's when you think that you'd never come back from something like that. But I did. Jerry played six NFL seasons, two with the Oilers, and four with the San Diego Chargers. In 1973, he averaged almost 18 yards per catch. He ended his career with 2,300 yards from scrimmage and averaged over 20 yards per kick return. Jerry likes to note that he hasn't been a difference maker only on the football field, but also in the business world. I was part of such great changes in this country that people don't understand, you know, because they didn't have blacks in commercials. I was part of the first group in our company that studied and went to seminars on putting blacks into commercials and changing the way we do business with gasoline these days. You know, when we start having self-serve and you start talking about quick lube and all that kind of stuff, I was part of all that, the development. And I've been blessed and be part, I've been part of the changes and helped make changes. You know, Conoco was at the forefront of a lot of stuff. I worked in Ponca City, Oklahoma in all seasons, studying gasoline and pipeline distribution. Jerry continues to make a difference on a social level. He serves on the board of directors for Harris County Child and Adult Protective Services. A psychology scholarship is named after him, encouraging more minorities to get into the field. SMU, therefore, doesn't issue his number 23 to just anyone. Wearing number 23 is an honor, and the player wearing it is chosen for more than his football skills. And, you know, June Jones, he didn't want people to forget about what I stood for. They could have retired it and it would have been just there, but it, it says something about the character of the young man that uh, wears that or what the coaches think about him or what he is supposed to reach for, his goals. Jerry Levias has spent a lifetime accomplishing goals and creating opportunities for others. My dad always said, aim for the moon and you land on the star. The fans and the schools benefit. He sped up the integration process because of how good he was. I mean, SMU was not a major factor in college football at that time. He goes in, they wind up winning their first Southwest Conference championship in 18 years. He's all-conference three times. He does all these wonderful things. He gets drafted high, and all of a sudden, coaches around that conference and really in other places say, okay, it's time for us to start working on bringing in black athletes. That began to happen, and Jerry Levice was a catalyst. The other teams in the Southeastern Conference and the ACC, they were aware. Of course they knew. Something great was happening in the Southwest Conference. This old charade of maintaining segregation it was over. You know, it wasn't just football. It was integrating society. You can't plan anything like that. And I, even today, I think about how did that all happen? Go stride and God and my faith. Yeah. I mean, that's it. I, I can't tell you 
about why I could remain so calm within outside appearance and do what I did and all the things that happened the way they did. Got to be God. Got to be faith. I believe in Psalms 23 and, you know, I live by the word. One of my favorite is Proverbs uh, 2, verses 10 and 11 says, Knowledge and wisdom is pleasures of the heart and soul. Discretion will preserve thee, but understanding will keep thee. I understand. And I said, discretion will preserve thee. If I complained and, and moaned about everything, nope, it wouldn't have done anybody any good. And that little dash between born and death, I wanted to say a lot. Thank you for listening to part two of In the Locker Room with Jerry Levias on the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast presented by the Hampton Inn, Waco North. Come visit Waco, Texas and the Texas Sports Hall of Fame and book a reservation at the Hampton Inn, Waco North.